The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. So the book of Psalms is a, uh, it's a giant prayer book, or otherwise you might say it's a, it's a giant hymnal. Um, I hope you enjoy our times in the Psalms as much as I do. I just, I love, love, love the Psalter and spending time there. And so I'm looking forward to these five weeks and meditating on some of these Psalms together with you. I wonder if you've ever thought about how our world is changing and how fast our world is changing. I mean, there, there, are, there are things that exist today, lots of things that exist today, that were only a part of, if you will, the imagination, even within my lifetime. Things that once were science fiction are now science fact. And so consider, consider the area of technology, all right? So I remember watching Star Trek as a kid, not the next generation or anything. I'm talking about the real deal Star Trek with Captain Kirk and everybody. Um, and I thought it was so cool that they could just you know, tap that insignia on their, on their shirt and immediately they have communication with anybody in their crew, right? Just to, you know, Captain Kirk and, and they could talk to whoever. Or maybe your speed was, was, wasn't Star Trek. Maybe your speed was, you know, Agent Maxwell Smart and his infamous shoe phone, right? His little rotary phone that he had on his, I think it was right foot is where the shoe phone was. Um, but there, there are lots of changes over the years. Things that, again, that exist today that didn't exist when I was born. Frankly, a lot of things that didn't even exist. I'm going to give you a list here of things that existed, um, that, that have come to exist in my lifetime. Most of these in my adult lifetime have come to exist. So personal computers. Um, I don't know, some of you are like, haven't personal computers always existed? I was in college when, when our family got our first personal computer. Cable TV, cell phones, the Internet. The video game Pong. Now, you're old enough to remember the video game Pong, okay? If you're not, come talk to me afterwards. I'll explain Pong to you. It was just, it was the latest, greatest uh, video game. Uh, video arcades, game console sets for the, for the home, the Sony Walkman, um, GPS systems, which I understand was invented just up the road here um, at NRL, uh, smartphones, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, satellite TV, smartwatches, email. I was an adult. I was a married adult before we got our first email address. And that, you know, nowadays people are setting up email addresses for their children when they're born so that their child has a unique email address. Uh, you know, I remember being an adult, married adult, when somebody had to explain to me, uh, hey, can I get an email address? And I said, What's, what, is that? what does that mean? Um, but our culture is changing rapidly. And I want us to think for just a moment how this rapid increase in technology changes us. Now, there, there are certainly many, many wonderful, wonderful things that have happened because of technology. So modern medicine, for example, is a technological miracle. You know, I, for one, I don't want to go back to the days before anesthesia for surgery, for example. You know, I don't want the days when, when the surgeon's best uh, skill was that he could, you know, saw your leg off fast so it didn't hurt as bad. You know, I, no thank you. I'm, I'm glad for an- anesthesia. But if, but if we had been born 200 years ago, if we had been born, if you will, in that little house on the prairie, 
we wouldn't have had to concern ourselves with whether our cable TV plan had the latest 250 channels of programming. Nor would we have to concern ourselves with checking into our social media accounts every hour on the hour. And we wouldn't have been distracted with telemarketers calling us you know, every hour of the day on our cell phones. Simply put, there weren't as many distractions for our time back then. And again, even though in many, many ways we're much better off today than we were a century ago, many of our technological inventions have come at a cost to us. In 2020, for example, the average adult spent 7 hours and 50 minutes per day. 7 hours, 50 minutes per day consuming digital media. Teenagers from 13 to 18 years old, this is again 2020, spent more than nine hours a day consuming digital media. And that, by the way, that didn't include the time that they would spend doing schoolwork on digital media. It's just like personal digital media. And so let me, let me state the obvious, if you will. 200 years ago, the number of the hours in the day, I think, was still 24, 200 years ago, right? The same number of hours we have today. But now today, adults and children alike are spending roughly a third of their day on technology that didn't even exist just a few years ago. And so we have to make up that time somewhere. And this is just an example of how we've become distracted in our day. And so I want us to look at Psalm 62 and to see what the psalm has to say about distractions. If you're there in 62, say amen. amen. All right. Um, psalm 62, to the choir master according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. David writes, For God alone my soul, my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He only is my God and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, O peoples. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray now, Lord Jesus, in the hearing of your word, that your spirit would accompany the word proclaimed. Lord, that you would speak through me in such a way that 
the saints would be edified. That you would speak through me in such a way that those who are hearing my voice even now, Lord, if they're not believers, Lord, that your spirit would accompany my word and you would convict their hearts of sin and show them your grace in the salvation you offer through your son. But use this time to your honor that your name would be magnified, that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled this morning's message, Too Many Distractions. Too Many Distractions. And if you're a note taker, our central idea is rather straightforward. We need to keep our focus on God. We need to keep our focus on God. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I, I believe the psalmist here in Psalm 62 is, is sharing with us at least three different distractions that he was facing in his day. Distractions, by the way, those same distractions we face still in our day. And so we're going to look at those three distractions. Um, and after I share those three distractions, I want to then look to what the psalmist says about or what he declares to be the answer to all of these distractions, okay? So first three distractions, and then the answer to the distraction, um, and then we go home and have lunch. Point number one, distractions. First distraction, the fear of man. The fear of man. We'll, we'll see this in verses 3 and 4. So look with me there, if you would, please, in verses 3 and 4 of the text. Psalm 62, David writes, How long... Will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse Selah. That word Selah, by the way, you see it all through the Psalter and, and a few other places in Scripture. It's just, a, uh, we believe, uh, a musical notation since the Psalms were meant to be sung. Uh, but it's... Uh, that, that, that's what it is, and so I won't say any more about that. We know from the title of the song that this, this psalm, again, is written by, by King David. We're, we can't be 100% sure exactly when he wrote it. Some believe that uh, David was writing this at a time when his son Absalom was seeking to overthrow his, uh, his father to become king himself. So, you know, how, how would you like to have a son like that? Says, oh, you're king. I don't want you to be king. I'm going to overthrow you. Uh, and so it could have very well been written during that time. That was a difficult uh, and dark period in David's life. Um, but we know for sure that the psalm was written during a period in his reign when he was facing persecution. And that's why David takes the time in verses 3 and 4 to personally address those people who are attacking him. In verse 3, he asks this question. He says, how long? How long will you keep on attacking me? Though those two little words, how long, are a clue for us to see that David isn't moaning and groaning about some momentary trial that he's going through. It's not like, well, just, you know, just, just, this happened to me last week and I'm just crushed about it. No, this, this is something, he, David is experiencing an ongoing attack. And so he cries out, how long? Will you keep on doing that? How long will you keep on persecuting me? Maybe you've been the victim of a bully in your life. No, no one likes being bullied, right? But, it, but it's one thing for bullying to happen one time and then it goes away. You know, somebody says something unkind to you at the, at the playground and then that, that's the end of it. It's quite another thing when the bullying persists for weeks or months, perhaps even years. If that's ever happened to you, then you know what David is saying here when he cries out, how long will you keep on doing this? 
But there's another important clue right there in verse 3. Look with me there again. He says, how long will all of you attack a man? All of you. Again, this sheds some important light on what's happening in David's life. He's not dealing with just one person as as a personal attacker. He's dealing with multiple people attacking him. All of you, plural. So at least two, probably more than two. If it were just two, right? He would have said, how long will both of you keep on doing this? But this is not both of you. This is all of you. So we're looking at at least three, perhaps more people attacking David. Now think back to that bullying example I used just a moment ago. Again, it's one thing to be momentarily bullied, then it stops. It's another thing to be persistently bullied by one individual. But now add this to the equation. Suppose you're being persistently bullied by a whole group of people. I mean, everywhere you turn, there's somebody else bullying you. You know, from, from my generation, the first, first thought that runs in my head is, you know, Karate Kid, you know, Daniel, Daniel LaRusso and the Cobra Kai Karate Dojo, you know, to have a, a mental picture of, of a whole group of people trying to bully one person. And according to verse 4 in our text, those who are attacking David, they want to, again, look at the text there, they want to thrust him down from his high position. Do, do you hear the activeness in that voice? It's, it's not just that they're, you know, I'm kind of hoping that something bad happens to David. You know, that, that would be bad enough in itself if they're just hoping for something bad to happen. But they're not just hoping for something bad. They are actively attacking. They want to thrust him down. They want to participate in ruining David's life. They want to take him down. Even if it means, notice this in verse 4, even if it means spreading lies. You see, they're double-tongued with your mouth, with their mouths. Do you, do you see that there in the text? Outwardly, they're full of blessings. Well, top of the morning to you, David. How are you doing? It's a wonderful day, isn't it, David? Can you believe this guy? Right? Outwardly, they're full of blessings, but inwardly, they're full of curses. Reminds me of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 29, what Jesus himself repeated from that prophet in Matthew 15. When Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But what does all this have to do with being distracted? Again, remember our main point this morning is that we need to keep our focus on God. When we're faced with people who are attacking us, maybe maybe it's through bullying. Maybe somebody is attacking you by way of slandering your reputation. Or maybe you just have people in your life that are just downright mean to you. I don't know what it is, what kind of personal attacks you might, have, might be facing or maybe you have faced or that might come in the future. But when we're faced with people who are attacking us in whatever way, we can come, become far too distracted by the fear of man. Like we're so worried about what this individual or those individuals are, are saying about us that we lose our focus on God. And so we need to reject the fear of man and keep our focus on God. Point number one. Point number two, second distraction. The pursuit of position. The pursuit of position. Again, look with me at the text. One of these straight from the text. Verse 9, this time. David writes, he says, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. And so here in this verse, David is acknowledging two classes of people. There are those of low estate, and they're those of high estate. Now, these classes of people, by the way, these would be how we recognize people. 
Not how God has recognized me. This is how we and our sinful tendencies, how we recognize people. In the New Testament book of James, uh, James gives us a helpful way of thinking about classes of people. In, in fact, why, why don't you take just a moment to turn there uh, to the book of James. It's uh, toward the end of your New Testament, so right after the book of Hebrews, um, you'll find James. We're going to look at James chapter 2. If, you're look, if you did grab one of those uh, red Bibles on the way in, you'll find it on page 1200. Okay, so a little cheat code for you uh, to get there faster. Uh, James chapter 2. We're going to only look at the first four verses of James chapter 2. And so turn there for just a moment. Keep your finger, by the way. I hope you keep your finger in Psalm 62. We're coming right back to Psalm 62. All right. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. James writes this. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, what's James doing here in this passage? He's addressing what we would call the sin of partiality. So in this, in this text, we have a man, to use the language of the psalmist, we have a man of low estate, a poor man. And we have a man of high estate, a rich man. And James is telling us that it's sinful to give preference to the rich man simply because he's rich. That when we give preference to him simply because his, he's rich, we are actually becoming judges with evil thoughts as if he's saying oh this guy hey we need we need him in our church because you know, he's going to help us make budget whereas this other guy he's going to do nothing but drain from our budget that's that's evil that's evil god takes bless you god takes no delight when we make these types of distinctions in the people we meet but our world Let's face it, we live in a world that's full of those types of distinctions, isn't it? We, we tend to give preference to people in power. We want prestige. We crave status. Let me share a couple of examples. I don't know of any of these. I hope, I hope one of the, at least one of these will, will um, hit home for you. Uh, any, how many of you are on Twitter? Any of you, if you have, have a Twitter account? Come on, be honest now. Really, I'm the only one in this church that has a Twitter account? Oh my goodness, then let me just scratch this whole, this, yeah, okay, we got a few people. Okay, we got three people that are not in the Stone Age that actually have Twitter accounts. Um, for those three of you, the rest of you just tune out for just a second. This, this is going to go for the three of you. Uh, sometimes on Twitter, we, we, we take a special interest on Twitter accounts that have, you know, that little blue check mark on the Twitter account. Now, if you're not familiar with Twitter, that blue check mark means you're looking at an account that is a verified Twitter account. It means the real person is actually the one making these tweets. And in case you're wondering, by the way, they don't just hand out those blue check marks. You have to qualify to get one of those blue check marks. And so some people, some people actually covet that blue check mark for themselves. And then, by the way, there's nothing wrong with having, I have personal friends who have the blue check mark, okay? There's nothing inherently wrong with having the blue check mark. But some people are like, oh, I want that blue check mark. That blue check mark means status for them. It means position. It means I've arrived. It means I am somebody. Because only a very, very, very small percentage of people on Twitter actually get the blue check mark. Or second, for those of you, okay, the rest of you who aren't on Twitter, um, 
Maybe your status or your position is measured by your job title. Yeah, we want people who are to notice us based on our job title. And I've seen some people, I mean, you, you look at their job title and you go, wow, that must be an important job, right? Um, so a little story about uh, me and my mom growing up. My mom, uh, when I was in high school and college, my mom worked as a janitor or a custodian um, at the University of South Carolina. She, she was good at her work. She excelled in her work. My mom had no problem telling people, you know, what, you know, what do you do for I'm a janitor. I'm a custodian or a custodian. She, she, she didn't crave fancy job titles. But in some places today, you would, you would think maybe, does it sound less dignified to call oneself a janitor or a custodian? You know, sometimes you'll hear somebody refer to, I'm a custodial engineer. Really? Custodial engineer? Or I'm a building services employee. Okay, fantastic. I mean, it's really in the language, isn't it? It's, it's how we package ourselves. Because we want people, I want my job title to say something important about who I am. I want status. I want position. We don't want to be of low estate. We crave high estate status. But notice what David has to say about those of low estate and high estate. Again, verse 9. Look, look with. Those of low estate are but a breath. And those of high estate are a delusion. The word translated there, delusion, it means a lie. In other words, we delude ourselves into thinking that we are actually of high estate. It's just a mental game. There really isn't a distinction between low and high estate. There are what are called, there are what are called human beings, and then that's it. I like the way the New Living Translation, I, I, typically I'll look at several different translations when I'm preparing a sermon. I looked at the New Living Translation this week. I love the way the New Living Translation gets at this verse. It says this, Common people are as worthless as a puff of wind, and the powerful are not what they appear to be. If you weigh them on the scales together, they are lighter than a breath of air. And so while we may be tempted to pursue position, it's really just an illusion. It's not what it appears to be. And as we pursue that position, as we make that the goal, I, I need to get there. I need that position. I need that status. We become distracted from that which is most important. We become distracted from following God. And so we need to be careful in the pursuit of position. Point number three. Distractions, material prosperity. Look with me now at verse 10. So the very next verse. Verse 10, let me turn back. Psalm 62, verse 10. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Beloved, I don't know if you know this, we live in a dog-eat-dog world. We live in a world where if you don't look out for yourself, no one else will. Does that sound, sound familiar? Does that sound like the message that our culture is often communicating to us? You've got to look out for yourself. If you don't look out for yourself, no one else will. If you want to get ahead in this world, you've got to be willing to crush your opponent. You have to win. I don't know if you remember that movie, uh, You've Got Mail, Tom Hanks. So, yeah, okay, got a few people that recognize. So more people than do Twitter actually watch movies. So I'm making some notes. So Meg, uh, Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks. In the movie, both characters, they're in the book business. 
Um, Hanks's character, he plays the corporate side of the business, and Ryan's character plays the personal side of the business. And, it, and at one point in the movie, you'll remember, uh, of course, they don't know each other. They're just communicating through email with one another. And, um, and Hanks tells Ryan, he says, he's given her business advice. He says, remember, it's not personal. It's just business. And he tells her, repeat that mantra over. And he says, if you, get, if you find yourself getting weak, remember, just it's not personal. It's just business. And of course, what he means by that is that sometimes in the corporate business world, in order to get ahead, you have to go to the throat of your opponent. You have to make hard decisions. You might have to say unkind things, but don't worry. It's not personal. It's just business. And you know what? Those worldly strategies will sometimes provide financial prosperity for those who employ them. Riches will sometimes increase. That's David's point, by the way, here in verse 10. He tells us, he says, don't put your trust or hope in worldly strategies. Don't trust extortion, or some of your translations might have their oppression. Don't set your hope on robbery. Those are worldly strategies to acquire wealth. And then he closes the verse with, but if riches do increase, don't set your heart on those riches, because those riches, they ultimately will not satisfy. Um, how many of you heard about Tom, a guy named Tom Brady? You heard about Tom Brady before? Okay, again, three people that do Twitter. Uh, they're the only ones that have heard about him. All right. Uh, well, in 2005, so let's go ancient history. Uh, 2005, um, after winning his third Super Bowl with the New England Patriots, Tom Brady did an interview with Steve Croft on 60 Minutes. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, uh, yeah, on YouTube, it's right there. Here's a portion of that dialogue. So I'm just littering, literally word for word what Brady and Croft said in this interview. Brady says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me, I think. God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it, I'm 27, what else is there for me? And Croft says, what's the answer? And Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Here's here's my point. With, With his own words, Brady admits that reaching the pinnacle of his profession, he had won his third Super Bowl. Now, he had joined an elite crowd. There were only three other quarterbacks in all of history who had done the same. So in other words, he was one of four men on the planet who could put on his resume that he had won three Super Bowls. Now, for those of you who follow football, you know he's won seven now. I mean, he's won an incredible number of Super Bowls. But I'm, I don't know him personally, but I'm guessing that in his most honest moments with himself, he's still asking that same question. What else is there for me? What else is there? Material prosperity never ultimately satisfies. I am told, so I haven't made my first million yet, but I'm told when you make your first million, what you want to do is make your second million then. And from Brady, evidently, once once you've won your third Super Bowl, well, then you want to win your fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh Super Bowls. And beloved, please listen, there's nothing wrong and there's nothing in the world wrong with having a good job that allows you to earn a million dollars. Praise God for that. 
Praise God for that. Now, you're, you're to be a steward of that money. You understand that that's not your money. It's God's money. But praise God that you've been steward, that, you, that he's given you the stewardship over that money. There's nothing in the world wrong with material wealth, nor is there anything wrong with excelling in your chosen profession as Tom Brady has. Nothing in the world wrong with those things. But when you set your heart on those things, emptiness will follow. Because those things were never meant to truly satisfy the heart. Only God is meant to truly satisfy our hearts. Material wealth, career success, when they're the main things in our lives, those things serve as distractions in our lives. They don't satisfy. Only God will truly satisfy. So there, those are the three things, those are the three distractions uh, that we have here in our text. Um, The remaining time, I want us to look now at what the psalmist has to say about what should be the most important thing in our life. So point number four, the answer to our distractions is God. God. And what I want to do with this final point is I'm going to give you three ways that we can keep our focus on God. So three ways we'll keep our focus on God. We're not going to put them up on the screen. They'll be obvious to you. Um, And then I'm going to give you three reasons why we need to keep our focus on God. And don't worry, they're all going to be quick. So this is not, if you will, six more points. These are all going to be very quick David starts the psalm in verse 1 with these words. Look there with me in verse 1. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. He'll repeat those same words nearly exactly in verse 5. Except in verse 5, it's, it's given as a commandment now. that we, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Wait. Here's what David is telling us. He's telling us, to press the pause button for just a moment. He's telling us to practice the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude. Just be quiet. This is the first way we keep our focus on God. We sit in silence before God. The Bible refers to God's voice as a still, small voice or a low whisper. But beloved, we're sometimes so busy with our lives that we don't take time to unplug so that we can listen to God. We're too busy spending every waking hour of the day with our earbuds in our ears that we don't take time to listen to God. You ever, you know, you ever been in church and there's like what appears to be an awkward moment of silence and you're wearing like a and if it goes on for you know, 10, 15 seconds, it's okay. But you know, it starts stretching like 30 seconds, gets up to a minute, and all of a sudden people start like, looking around like, is this supposed to be happening right now? It's, it's like we're programmed to, to that, 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 that I can't do this. This silence bothers me. But David, not once but twice in this brief psalm, presses us on to silence before God. Wait in silence. And so let me share this with you. If you, in your time with God, if you don't have moments of silence, let me encourage you to make that a part of your time with God. You know, maybe read a brief passage. Don't, don't read a whole chapter. Read a brief passage of Scripture, and then stop and let that passage you know, rumble between your ears a little bit. Let God speak to you through His Word. There's a reason, by the way, it's called a quiet time. And so, beloved, if you're the one doing all the talking during your time, quiet time, then maybe you ought to rethink about how you're doing your time alone with God. And so we wait in silence. 
And one of the reasons we wait in silence, I believe David answers that right there in verse 2, or at the end of verse 1 and in verse 2. He says at the end of verse 1, for him, or excuse me, from him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And so we wait in silence for God because he is the God from whom comes our salvation. He is our rock. He is our fortress. Those same words, by the way, are repeated again in verse 6. Our salvation rests on God alone. And I believe that here in this psalm, David is using that word salvation both in in what's called an eschatological sense, and I'll explain that in just a moment, as well as in a temporal sense. And so let me explain. Temporally, that is in time, so the here and now, God is the one who delivers us from our enemies. And David had lots of enemies. Maybe, Maybe you're familiar with that. But David knew that God would deliver him from his enemies. David knew that he could count on God, not just in the future, but he could count on God in the here and now, as well as in the hereafter. And so salvation in that sense, David's using, I believe, in a temporal sense. That means right now, God is saving me. But salvation is also eschatological. And eschatological, it's just a fancy way of saying the end of time or in the the last days. It comes from a Greek word in in the Bible. And here the sense is that it is God alone who will deliver us from he- to heaven when we pass from this earth. So in the end of our days, God will save us. Now think about it this way, beloved. If someone asks you why you think you're going to... Like somebody, suppose somebody at lunch today says to you, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Think about that for just a moment. How would you answer that? Why am I going to go to heaven? If the first thoughts that come to your mind are the first person singular pronoun because, well, I prayed a prayer or I asked Jesus into my heart when I was eight. If you start your, per- your answer with a first person pronoun, I'm going to just say to you, something's amiss. Let me, let me explain. When someone asks you why you think you're going to go to heaven, the answer ought to always begin with a third person. I'm going to heaven because of what He has done for me. I'm not going to heaven because of my own righteousness. I'm going to heaven because Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty that I owe for my sin, and Jesus then gave me His righteousness. That's why I'm going to heaven. Not because of what I've done, but because of what He has done in me. And listen, friends. This this may be a novel concept for some of you. Perhaps some of you don't know that much about Jesus, and I'm super glad you're here. This is what a wonderful place to come and know more about Jesus. Second, I, w- I would love if, you, if you're like, yeah, this, this is interesting. I, I want to know more about what Jesus, I would love a chance to talk with you about that. Because I'll be honest with you, and I don't say this because I'm a preacher. I say this because I love talking about Jesus, okay? I'll do this all day long if you want me to. But if you want to say, hey, let, let's, okay, let's, let's only do this for 30 minutes. Okay, then let, we'll only talk for 30 minutes. But come and talk to me and say, hey, I want to know more about that Jesus guy you're talking about. I would love to have that conversation with you or to set up a time where we can have that conversation. But we wait in silence because God alone is our rock and salvation. We wait in silence because what he has to say is infinitely more important than what I have to say. Look with me at verse 7. The psalmist says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. You see, our our salvation rests on God alone. 
A few weeks back in the spring, I was wanting to build a retaining wall in my backyard so I could create um, a level area for a fire pit I had back there. Unfortunately, I just had shoulder surgery, um, so I wasn't able to lift the stones uh, to build the wall, so I decided to hire a couple teenagers. Um, Their last names happened to be the same as my last name. Um, And so uh, I was able to do some of the light work, but they did all the heavy work, uh, all the lifting, all the digging. And if if you've ever built a wall, uh, you know that the, the most important level in a wall is the foundation of that wall. Am I right, Ronnie Scott? Is that the most important? Thank you. I, I, I'm ask the expert. Um, if the foundation isn't strong, the wall isn't going to be strong. The, the retaining wall rests on that foundation. And that's what's happening in our salvation. God is the foundation, if you will, of our salvation. He is our rock. There in verse 7, He's our mighty rock. Our salvation rests on Him and on Him alone. And on Him we find our refuge. Now I want you to notice something interesting that's happening in the psalm. Up to this point in the psalm, up through verse 7 in the psalm, David has been talking about his own experience with God. He's been saying things like, my soul, my salvation, my rock, my fortress, etc. He uses the word my in the first seven verses 14 times. My, 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 my. But when we get to verse 8, he changes his audience. And from verses 8 through 12, he only uses the first person pronoun once. He'll say I one time in verse 11. And so now he's addressing us as his audience. And in verse 8, we're told to trust. We're given a command. Trust in him. You, all you peoples, trust in him at all times. And we're told to pour out our hearts before God. And so the second way that we rely or that we focus on God is we trust in Him. And then immediately after being encouraged to trust Him, we're again, we're given that third way. The third way is to uh, pour out our hearts to Him. Pour out our hearts. So we wait in silence. We trust. We pour out our hearts. And that, that language of pour out, that just... That just as I was thinking about that this week, I just really spoke to me about how we pour out our heart. You know, pouring out something, it's not, that's not a measured response, right? Pouring out something implies leaving nothing behind. You just dump the whole thing. It, we abandon everything and we give it all to God. That's what the psalmist is saying. We give Him all of our heart. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, why don't we, why don't we do that? Why, why do we have trouble pouring out our heart before God? And I don't know if this is what you think, but this came to my mind. I think sometimes we're afraid to share our heart with God because we're aware of all the filth that we have in our heart. And we're afraid that when I pour out my heart, then God is going to see the filth that's in my heart. But let me let, let, me let you in on a little secret. God already knows about the filth that's in your heart. He knows about the filth that's in my heart, and He loves us still. And so we're called to pour out our hearts before Him. These three things. Silently wait before God. Rest or trust in God. And pour out our heart before God. Those are the ways that we keep our focus on God. Now, three reasons why we keep our focus on God. And these will be in verses 11 and 12. And these are all even quicker than the first three. Look with me at verses 11 and 12, please. The psalmist says, once God has spoken. By the way, God only needs to speak once. 
you know, it, when, when, he, when he's spoken once, you don't even say, well, really, can you, can you repeat that to me, God? Because I'm not sure whether I want to do it. Now, if you say it twice, then it's worthy of doing it. No, no, no. Once he has spoken, then the psalmist says, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. All three of these, again, it's super brief, but these are the three reasons why we keep our focus on God. First reason is we keep our focus on God because power belongs to God. See that right there at the end of verse 11. Again, once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. None, none of those things that are tempted to distract us have ultimate power. None of them do. Those people, material wealth, position, none of those things have ultimate power. They might have temporal power, but none of them have ultimate power. Only God has ultimate power. Power belongs to God. Second, we keep our focus on God because steadfast love belongs to God. That's a beautiful word, by the way. The, the Hebrew word is chesed. Um, it's a fantastic, people have written entire books about this one word. It's a fantastic word. And it, it, it speaks of God's covenant-keeping love. It's a love, if you will, that never fails, ever. And so we keep our focus on God because God is chesed. He has a steadfast love for us. That belongs to God. Third, we keep our focus on God because only God, listen to this, Right there at the end of the psalm, only God will render to a man according to his work. In the final analysis, at the final judgment, I won't stand before any of you to give an account of my life. I won't stand before my parents to give an account of my life. And I will not stand before my children to give an account of my life. I will stand before God to give an account of my life. And God will render to me according to my work. And it's the same thing for you, by the way. Now, by the way, David... Lest you misunderstand, David is not suggesting some type of works-based righteousness here. That's not what he's saying. What David is saying, however, is that if we're genuinely saved, if we've genuinely trusted in Jesus, then there ought to be some evidence of that salvation flowing out in the outworking of our lives. And so what distractions are in your life right now? Distractions, perhaps, that are tempting you to take your eyes off God. It might be one of those three. Might, you might say, none of those things are distracting me, but I have this distraction right now. You know, I'm, not, I'm not a farmer, but I'm told that when a farmer plows a very large field that he will keep his eyes focused at the end of the field on a stationary object, and he, will, he, he won't take his eyes off of that fixed point because he wants his row to be straight. Blood, if you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, we need to keep our eyes focused on God, on Him. There, there will be many distractions in our life. Again, one of these three, maybe another distraction, but count it a certainty that you will have distractions in your life. But beloved, keep your eye on the Lord. Don't take your eye off Him. That's where our focus needs to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Oh, Lord God, thank you for the psalmist. Thank you for the word shared through generations 
nearly 3,000 years ago, David wrote these words and how powerfully they still speak to us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who, who perhaps are battling with their own distractions, maybe their family distractions or work distractions or financial distraction, whatever it might be, Father, that in the midst of distraction, help them to keep their focus on you. Father, there might be others here today who their entire life is nothing but distraction because they don't have an anchor in their life. They don't know you through your son, Jesus. And I'm so glad that they're here today. I'm so glad that they're here. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak even to them, even now. That you would draw them to yourself. Lord, we thank you. Help us to keep our focus on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.